Well, <clears throat> why not Jesus? Didn't you enjoy the worship today? Man, it was so good. And, um, you know, this band showing up every Sunday and playing, and they love you, we love you, I love you, and uh, just appreciate you being here today and also watching at home. And uh, I want to turn to the book of Colossians, and let me tell you a story first. Very, you know, I think it's kind of a funny story. If you like golf, you can imagine what kind of things went on. But several years ago, one of our members, James, I'll call him because that was his name, uh, he's now moved off and is uh, because of business. But uh, as a young man, he was here very outgoing, didn't know a stranger, and he was invited by one of his friends here at church to go to the Bay Hill Invitational right here in Orlando golf tournament, and uh, he, was, he didn't know anything about golf, but he's walking along. He turned to this guy, always going to talk to somebody, right? Turns to this guy and says, who are you following? Because oftentimes you go from hole to hole and follow your favorite golfer. So he says, who are you following? And the guy looked at him and says, I'm playing. And so he looked around and he realized, that, I, I don't know if he figured out what those ropes are there for, <laughs> but he's walking down the middle of the fairway. And so with the golfer. And so, but the question really does remain, by the way, it was Tom Lehman, uh, who is a, I don't think he's a master, I'm not sure about masters, but certainly a major champion and a great Christian guy. And so he had, a, I'm sure, a good laugh over it. But the question was asked, who are you following? Because you're following someone or something something that you believe. And so in this series, I wanted to begin a series of mes messages today on what does it mean to follow Jesus? And I know I've been preaching on that for 27 years, but nevertheless, we change our names sometimes, you know, as, as Christians, we call ourselves Christians, sometimes believers. Now, more recently, I'm a Christ follower. And it came to my mind, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, in Simon Sinek's book, on Start With Why, business book, he says that if you establish the why of something, people are gonna be more apt to get involved in what you're doing. In fact, they're gonna, they're gonna figure out sometimes the what. So we wanna look at why, or at least why not follow Jesus. The why to it all. And as we open up the book of Colossians, very unusual book in the fact that Paul is writing a letter to a church, and he's writing a letter to a church where he's never been. In fact, it was believed that on his third missionary journey while he was at Ephesus, there's a little town right down the road called Colossae. And he sent a fellow by the name of Epaphras, short for Epaphroditus, to go over there and start a church in a town that had been uh, really, uh, really destroyed by an earthquake and they never really came back again. But even in their embryonic stage, they were inching over to false doctrine. They were believing things that Paul was very, very concerned about. In fact, all of this book talks about the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ to everything else. But look with, the, with me at the warnings that he gives in this book. Chapter 2, verse 4, it says, I say this in order that no, no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What we don't understand sometimes is that no matter how outrageous the argument is and the belief is, if somebody didn't have a decent argument, a believable argument, then obviously no one would believe it. Verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition and according to the elementary spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Then in verse 18 of the same chapter, he warns them even about angel worship. So they were involved in a little bit of angel worship. They were looking at knowledge. 
knowledge, which was really at the end of the first century, kind of uh, believed in one way or another, that if you just had the knowledge, you were a better person. If you had the knowledge, you could, that could lead you to salvation. And so all kinds of philosophies were going through the church at Colossae, and God, through Paul, warns us about them. Now, this book really is divided up into two parts. Chapters 1 and 2 is the explanation or the doctrine. And then chapters 3 and 4, we get into the application of that doctrine or the duty. The doctrine and the duty. And as we look at this passage this morning, the first 14 verses, we're going to see right off the bat, Paul doesn't waste time. He gets right into the argument of why not Jesus. Now, some of you are like maybe Solomon of the Old Testament. You know, he tried the book of Ecclesiastes. He tried pleasure. He tried money. He tried fame and fortune. He tried apathy even in his life. Nothing seemed to work. And maybe you're like the, the lady on the, the little video following, and she just tosses her phone. Because nothing really seems to be clicking for you. And so let's click it together. Let's look at it. The gospel, three things. The gospel, he says three reasons. The gospel has come to you. Therefore, the blessings are coming your way because Jesus has qualified you. The cross has qualified you. So let's look at it. Verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now notice he says, I'm in the will of God. I've been called as an apostle by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, so he's sort of a, maybe a co-author in this. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ as Col at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now notice just in these first two verses, I'm not going to comment much on them because they're just a greeting, just the way Paul has most of his greetings in every epistle that he wrote, every little book that he wrote. He had the same kind of greeting. But then we get down into the gospel has come to you, beginning in verse 3. We always thank God. Now he goes right into it. And oftentimes he does this in every book. He thanks God for the church. Just sort of, first of all, telling, telling them what they're doing right. But in this, we get some really good insight on what Paul is talking about. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this we have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. The gospel, he says, has come to you. Now, in the literal form, if we were going to really just read this just on the page for what it's worth and what it maybe was originally went for, uh, at least at first, was simply this. The gospel message, the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on the cross for your sins, was buried, raised again on the third day. That message has come to you. The good news, that's what gospel means. The good news has, has come to you. But some commentators and, and pastors feel like they take it a step further. He says, what he's saying, really, since he's writing to Christians, what he's saying is the gospel has not just come to you in a message. The gospel has come to you in truth in your heart. The gospel has come to you. Story is told of John and Charles Wesley. Many of you perhaps have heard of them. Way back in a couple of centuries ago, they started the Methodist church. Well, they started really in England. That's where they started. And they were members of church, uh, a church there, and they met with four or five other guys, including uh, a fellow by the name of William Holland. And so they were meeting together, and they would discuss the Bible and discuss the Christian life. 
John and Charles, John Wesley founded, you know, the, the Methodist church, as I said, was a circuit riding preacher all the way through America, the known America of that day. Uh, rode on horseback all night to get to the next place to preach. He'd preach all day. Charles Wesley wrote some of the hymns that we find in our book. William Holland was one of their friends. May of 1838, May of 1838, they had a meeting. And they were, had been discussing the fact that the religion that they had was empty. They were doing all the rituals on the outside, but nothing was coming true really on the inside. They weren't sensing anything that had changed really in their life. And William Holden had been reading a book by Martin Luther uh, on his commentary on the book of Galatians. So he brought it to the meeting that day in 1838, and that uh, day in May, gave it to Charles Wesley and said, would you read this for us? And so he took it, began to read, he began to read the introduction. As he did that, William Holland just jumped up and he says, I get it, I get it. You know, the gospel, it's, it's coming to me. It's come to me. And Charles Wesley in his journal Comment, he said, I could see before my very eyes a transformation in William's life. And he said, I didn't, I didn't get it that day. I didn't get it. I just read it. I didn't get it. It would be days later before I would get it. But the gospel came to William Holland. Not just rituals on the outside, not just works on the outside, but the grace of God came into his heart. So how do you know that? How do you know the, that the gospel has come to you? Well, he gives us four things right here. Now, I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list, but Paul gives us four things about the church at Colossae. He says in verse four, he says that the love that you have for all the saints, if the gospel has come to you, you're gonna have a love for all the saints. Over and over and over again in the Bible, it says that if we're Christians, we're gonna love God first, love our neighbor second. Here's what it says in 1 John 3. We know that we have passed from death into life because we have love we, because we love the brothers. We love one another. Over and over again in 1 John 3.17, 3.23, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 6, love one another, love one another. One of the signs of being a Christian is loving one another. You say, well, I got that down. There's no problem there, you know? Uh, you know, I, I feed the hungry or I, uh, I, I minister in church. I teach Sunday school and, or I'm sorry, small group in church, you know? And I do all these things, well, that, those are good signs. But sometimes it's the difference between ba being, we'll say a babysitter and a parent. So somebody calls you up, maybe some of you college students, high school students, they want you, we, we need a babysitter uh, for tonight. And so you know the kids and you like the kids. And so you go and you're a babysitter that night. What do you do? Sometimes you have to change diapers. You know, you don't want to, but you do because it's your duty. That's what you signed up for. You're gonna get, by the way, this is a paying job. Right? You're gonna get paid, all right? So you're gonna get paid and, and you know that's your job. And you know it's your job to watch after the kids. Make, make sure they don't get hurt. Make sure they get to bed on time. When the parents come home, you get paid, you leave, and you maybe had a good pleasant experience, but uh, you're not gonna raise those children. Now maybe you had a bad experience, but you know what to do then, right? You just don't go back, right? You don't call us, you know, we'll call you. So, but that's, that's an assignment. It's a duty. And some people, even in, in the church life, do exactly that. The parents are different. They come home from, uh, they're coming home from their date night and they're having to, to raise the children whether they like it or not. They're raising their children with, through the good times, through the bad times, no matter what's happening in their life. Why? Because there's a different type of relationship. There's a love 
relationship there. Paul is saying the church at Colossae, with all that you're going through, you have a love for one another. But not only that, but he talks about a hope, a gospel of hope, moving through these very quickly. A gospel of hope, hope in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you, you have the love for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, we said before that hope is the future part of faith. It says in uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, when it defines faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Yeah, there is a conviction of things, angels and demons and, and heaven and hell and all those kind of things. You just can't see them. But the future part of this, he says, is the assurance of things hoped for. It's something that is in the future, but it's as good as though it's in your hand. That's, that's the hope of the gospel. It's the assurance that you're going to have something and you're looking forward to receiving it. Now, that makes a difference in the way you live. It just makes a difference. When you know that, okay, there's not enough justice here on earth, but there's a justice in the afterlife. No, I need to watch my, how I live now because there is an accountability when I die. There's a heaven. There's a judgment. There's an accountability there for how I live my life. And so, therefore, I have to watch it. We said several weeks ago, there was an author recently that wrote a book, and he said that no, at no time in history, at no time in history, has there been a society that believed when you're dead, you're dead, like there is in this society. That there is no afterlife. And people are living their life exactly for what they either want to live for or they're finding something to worship. Something. And they're looking around for something because everything's in the now. Once I die, justice is over. There is no heaven, there's only the earth. So therefore, we have to do something about the earth. Over and over and over again, you find these philosophies that are saying there is no afterlife. So hope is going to make a difference, a tremendous difference in simply how you live your life. Hope makes us willing to sacrifice the immediate on the altar of the future. But also notice then, therefore, there's a gospel of power here as well. It says in here, he says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. There's a power in it, a power to grow you as a believer. So one of the things that is evident in your life, if you really, as if the gospel has come to you, there's gonna be a power in your life, a power to not only find out what God wants you to do, we'll get to that in just a moment, but also to do it, a growth in your life. Now, the Bible calls this type of growth in two ways. One, it's the growth of another Christian. In other words, you're, you're leading somebody to the Lord. But there's also the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul explains it in Galatians 5. The, the love, the hope, the peace, the long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. He says when you have those things in your life, it's an evidence. As those things are growing in your life, and you're putting, as we'll get to the book uh, in chapter 3 and 4 here in a few weeks, and you're putting the old self behind and the new self is growing, that's an evidence of, the Christian, of, of things happening in your life. One pastor said, I read uh, not too long ago, he believed that all of our emotional problems are stem from the lack of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. For example, if you're angry, there's a lack of love in your life. If you're discouraged, there's a lack of joy. If you're worried, 
about everything coming along in life. There's a lack of peace in your life. So he's saying to the church at Colossae, you follow the Lord, not false doctrine, not, not false teaching. You follow the Lord. There's going to be a power in your life because it's in your life already. You've responded to the gospel already. That power is living in your life. Allow that power to grow the fruit in your life. And you're going to put away a lot of the problems in your life. There's a gospel of power. And then there's a gospel of grace. He says in verse 6, the grace of God in truth. Not just something that God gives, but something God gives in truth. And he keeps coming back to this over and over and over again. The, gospel, the grace, of course, of salvation is that you're not working for the gospel yourself. If you're here today and you're saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm not going to fellowship with those, those people who are not raised in a Christian home, who have been here or been there and, and lived this kind of lifestyle in the past. I just don't know about them. What you're saying is, is again, you're, you feel like that you did something, a little bit of something, a small portion of salvation that you deserve. After all, you were raised by Christian parents. You were a good kid. You grew up, and even though you, you weren't perfect, you, were, you, were, you feel like you were pretty close. See, you sort of worked for that. No, the grace, it's the gospel. You realize that everything that you have comes from God, and everything you have is purely by his grace. So what about you? Who are you following? He says, if the gospel's come to you, there's going to be blessings coming your way. In fact, they're already coming. I've just explained some of them to you, but he goes on in verse 9, verse 7, for example. He says, just as you have learned from Epaphras, this church planter, our beloved fellow servant, he is faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so, for this reason. Now, some of your versions do say that, for this reason. Because I'm thankful. Because of what you've already accomplished in your life. What, what God has already done in your life. There, for this reason, I pray for you. Now, in my, my translation, it says so that, but it means the same thing. For this reason, he says, I'm going to, he says, I never cease to pray for you, asking you two things. I'm asking for you. These must be important. This is the place where he's praying for the church at Colossae in their context of what they're going through. And he says, boy, this is just really important. I'm going to pray just not a list of things, not a laundry list, two things. Number one, that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. He's already said, I'm walking in his will. You need to be filled also with the knowledge of his will. And he prays for that. Now, this word comes from the Greek word epigenosis, which means a moral and ethical knowledge. It says in the Old Testament that Israelites went to war because of lack of knowledge. Israel was destroyed for lack of knowledge. When you, live by the, when you don't live by the truth, when you don't have the truth, the gospel, it says the gospel of truth, now he comes back to the knowledge of his will. When you don't have that, you're operating at a great disadvantage of life. You really are. So knowledge is important. He's not saying that knowledge is not important. He's not saying that you should uh, not believe anything. He's saying you need to discern what you believe, which he goes on to say in the second thing when he says that in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let me park here for just a moment. The most important part of this entire passage are those words. He's saying, look, you're going through some false doctrine. There's, there's false doctrine seeping in. There's philosophies of life seeping in to what the gospel really is. 
You need to be wise. You need to be discerning. Now, this is a theme, major theme of the Bible. The book of Proverbs is constantly contrasting the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of man and the wisdom of God. We can find this in James 1.5 when James says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And so how do you know that you have the wisdom of God? Now, we've just explained how you know you have, that the gospel has come to you. How do you know the difference between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God? That kind of, seems kind of difficult. And at first glance, maybe it is. But what's the difference? Let's, let's just start there. In James chapter 3, it actually tells us what the difference is between the wisdom of men and the, uh, the wisdom of God. Describes it. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom, listen, this is not the wisdom that comes down from heaven, from above. He says it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. Well, that's pretty strong words. What, is the, what do they mean? Well, the first one, earthly, doesn't mean that it comes from the dirt. It means that it comes from people, philosophers and thinkers and theologians and people who, who really influenced the thoughts of men down through the centuries, up to this point, and certainly the point for us as well. The whole idea of unspiritual is a contrast to the natural. In other words, the wisdom also comes from you. You look around yourself and say, well, I know very little of the past, nothing of the future except for what's happening uh, where I am, and none of the future, but I'm, I'm nevertheless gonna take what is earthly, and I'm gonna take my own thoughts, and I'm gonna come up with my own conclusions. Demonic, where do you think the thoughts are coming from? You know, just because something's demonic doesn't mean somebody's rolling around in the, in the dirt having convulsions. We have thoughts all the time that are unspiritual, thoughts all the time that come into our mind even for temptation. And so you can also know that if Satan can change your mind and want you to believe something that is anti-biblical, then it's a whole lot better than getting you to sin one time. And so it's those three things. They are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now let's look at this earthly for just a moment. The philosophers of our day, did you know that as one writer, David Brees, once said, there are people who rule the world from the grave. Did you know that what you're believing today, and this is all of us, is a product of anti-Christian and sometimes anti-God philosophies that are over the century? It just is. For example... Let me give you an example of uh, Rousseau, who was a 17th century uh, philosopher. I think that's the century, the 1700s anyway. And um, he was the one who came out with the theory that man is basically good. You leave man to his own devices, no rules, no regulations. He's just going to do the right thing. That's why you have people today are saying things like one person said, I think that if, if, I, if somebody broke into my house, they had a gun and I had a gun and I put my gun down, they'd put their gun down too. Uh, others saying, you know, if we just deal with these foreign countries and we just say, let's, let's make a treaty or whatever, they're just always going to keep it. 
You say, well, that's really naive, but that's a belief that if you, maybe you're raised right, you do right, you're, you're reasoning enough with people, they're just gonna do the right thing. And so that has influenced our philosophy of life even down three, 400 years later. But listen, this is, uh, this is I, I looked up Rousseau just simply in the, in the uh, encyclopedia. And it says that he, influ he was influenced by Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Hobbes, and also Voltaire, a known atheist, proud of it. He influenced Kant, the French Re Revolution and the Enlightenment period, Romanticism, Napoleon, Hume, David Hume, Thomas Paine, the Age of Reason, atheist, he influenced him. Karl Marx, Wellhausen, who's the founder of modern day liberalism in the Bible, Bible liberalism. The Bible, he says, was not the word of God, never been the word of God, it contains the word of God. Therefore, you have to search through the Bible and figure out what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. Hegel, um, who uh, came up with no absolute truth. And then Marx, if I haven't said that already, Darwin, Freud, Thoreau, Nietzsche, over and over again, there's a lot more here, but those are the ones that a lot of us would recognize. So what has happened? One philosopher really feeding into the other philosopher, and now we have the philosophy that we, we have today that does, is no longer, there's no absolute truth. That was of the 90s and the early 2000s. Now we have a philosophy, at least in Western civilization, is my truth is my truth, and that's the only truth, and you don't have a truth. And so it's very opposite of what we just had in the 90s because the, the whole idea of absolutely no truth doesn't work. It's like the professor got up and said, one, one thing I know for sure, there's no, no absolute truth. And the student raises his hand, are you absolutely sure about that? It's just a, a circular argument. And so it doesn't work. And so now we've gone to something else. Now, here's my point. The point is this, and I think Paul is making this as well. Is I'm not saying that truth is not truth no matter where it comes from. These people could hit on some truth, but all they're doing, they're studying the philosophers of the past, those that are influencing them, they're looking at life from their own perspective. Yes, I think most of the time, demonic forces are involved, putting thoughts into their head. They're coming up with a philosophy and we're, we're living by the philosophy and the theology of dead people. People have gone to the grave. But don't you think that we need to be more discerning? All I'm saying is this, if this is coming from the earth, if it's coming from our natural senses, if it's coming from the mnemonic forces, don't you think that we at least ought to be scrutinizing these beliefs? Don't you think that we ought to be discerning what we're getting into? And that's what Paul's saying, look, look at it. Look at it from the scriptural perspective because he says here in the book of James, as I turn back to it, he says, but the wisdom from above is, listen to this, first and foremost, is pure, is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He said, look, the blessings are coming to you. The blessings are coming. And he said, well, how do you know that? Well, look at this. So as, verse 10, See, it makes a difference in your life. 
It makes a difference. He says, for this reason, I pray these things. And if you, if this prayer is answered in your life, here's what's going to happen. You're going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power. You're going to have more power. You're going to have the glorious might, endurance, and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. You're going to, be, you're going to have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You're not going to be as angry because you're going to have love. You're not going to be as worried because you're going to have peace. You're not going to be as discouraged because you have joy. And these are increasing and growing in your life. And you don't have to say to yourself, well, I'm going to see what philosophy is coming down next out of the pike so I can believe that too. You see, it's not what TV is telling you. It's not what the movies are sharing with you and trying to convince. It's not what's in the songs. It's not even what's on social media. It's what is in the Word of God. Word of God. Here's what's happening. You say, well, look, these people are so smart, Pastor. I mean, they're just smart. Let me tell you how smart they are. Somebody asked me. Well, thank you for asking. They're about this much smarter than you. More intelligent. That much. In fact, maybe even less. Give me an example of that. Some of you have been to New York City. And you're walking along the street. I've been to New York City a couple of times. I've been to the Empire State Building. I look up and I think, wow, what a big building. It's so much bigger than the rest of the buildings when you're next to it. But then if you're flying over New York City and about ready to land, you're picking out, you're looking, and up there's the Empire State Building. It's still, it's still so much bigger than the rest of the buildings. But then when you're flying over New York and you're not going to land there, you're just flying over. You look down and you say, where in the world is the Empire State Building? In fact, where's Manhattan? You can barely see it. And it all looks flat. One building does not look any bigger than the other one. And if you had super eyes, you would look at it and it would look about this much bigger probably than the rest of the buildings. Now, what do you think about outer space? You're in outer space. If you could ever see Manhattan and ever pick out the Empire State Building, it would look the same as every other building. Now, for me to stand before the, the Empire State Building on the ground, I look and say, oh, my goodness, how big it is. When I look at Rousseau and when I, when I study, maybe read Hume or some of the other people, Voltaire, I think, oh, man, they're talking in language maybe I don't even understand. My goodness, they're so smart. But when you're talking about the creator of the universe, the one who sustains life, the one who created the planets that we're even seeing, when he looks down on the earth, they're about this much smarter than you. That is. They're about that much smarter. And yet they're saying, I don't believe in God, most of them. Let me come up with a philosophy apart from God. And that's really what secular, really what philosophy is all about. It's coming up with a way of looking at life without God. If it was with God, it would be more like theology, the study of God. And so you and I look, and we say, because of that, because of what God's doing, why does it happen? The gospel has come to you. The blessings are coming to you because the cross has qualified you. That's right. Look in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How did he do that? He qualified you because he died on the cross for you. Romans 5.1 says, being justified by faith, it, it tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. A peace, no longer a conflict between us and God. Why? Jesus died on the cross. And the very moment that we receive Christ into our life, we are declared not guilty. We have become qualified now, qualified to receive the blessings of God, qualified to know what is going on in the Christian, to know the mind of God, to know the will of God, to have the wisdom of God. We have been qualified. But then he says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He qualified us. Now, what happened to us when we got saved? Well, here we became a Christian, a Christ follower. He transferred us into one kingdom, into a brand new kingdom, in whom, verse 14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament and New Testament imagery, people would go to the slave market and they would pay a ransom, a ransom to redeem a slave out of the slave market. Sometimes they could set them free. Sometimes they'd come and work for them. But that, that's the imagery here. Jesus Christ paid a ransom. His blood, died, he died on the cross. His blood was, was shed for you, spilt for you. And because of that, he paid that ransom so he could take you out of one kingdom and bring you into another. One job to bring you to another boss altogether. For example, some of you maybe even today, working for a boss you just despise. You know, you pray about it every day, but all you can do is just hold on. You need the job. You, you know, you, if you go to another job, hey, you're, you're not going to be making as much money. You're, you feel trapped in the job. You hate the job. You wake up on Monday morning. Even right now, as I mentioned the job, anxiety, stress just came over you. Oh, I got to go to work again in the morning. Now, I've just described about half of our staff. No, I'm just joking around. <laughs> they love it here, as I do. But that's the kind of job you're working. 70% of the job people in America are working in a job that is not satisfying to them and they don't like. But so suppose you really hated it. You just hated the job. But the guy kept promising you this raise and this raise and this promise, and never fulfilling the promise. And somebody comes along to you and says, hey, I, I hear about what's going on. And uh, I know that I'm not going to hire you because you're a good worker. Because I don't know that. I mean, you know, how can you do good work under that? But I'm going to hire you to do another job. And you go to that place and suddenly you, you realize this boss is great to work for. Everything he promises, he comes through on. He's encouraging to me. He gives me things that I would never. In fact, the whole place here, the atmosphere is just different. It's wonderful. In the middle of the night, a knock comes at your door. It's your old boss. You quit the job. It's been now weeks. You've quit the job. He knocks on your door, and he looks at you and says, Joe, there's some things on the job that aren't getting done. You get dressed right now, and you come down to my company, and you finish the job. And you go get your clothes. You put them on. You get cleaned up. And every night now, you're working. And pretty soon, the nights stretch into the afternoons. And you can't even do your new job. You can't do it because you're working for the old boss. And he's making you miserable in spite of the fact he keeps promising things. But he never delivers. You say, well, who would do that? We would do that. The Church of Colossae would do that. You've been bought with a price. And you've been transferred into a brand new kingdom. Why should you go back and serve the old king? Why would we do that? We've been saved out of that. And in order to 
continue to grow in Christ, we've got to believe what God says, which the knowledge of his will is right here in this book. The wisdom of God is found in this book. You want to know the wisdom of God, it's right here. It's right here. Following Jesus, following Jesus, it just makes sense. It's logical. He is God. He died for you. He's ever living to pray for you and ever to bless you. Now, Paul would never pray anything that wouldn't come true in our life, have the opportunity to come true. It can come true in your life today. But maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, the gospel's never come to me. What you've described is not my life. You know, I try to be religious. I try to go to church, join the church, been baptized. I've tried to live up to the standard of the Bible, or my own standard, at least, of the Bible. But I can't seem to do that. And you're just trying to add to the grace of God, trying to earn it in some way, instead of a total surrender of your life, saying to the Father, I, I'm just yours. I quit this old job. I repent of my sins, and I, I just quit that. I want a whole new master and going all in to working for the new kingdom and being in that kingdom. If you've never received Christ, or you're not even sure today, if you're a believer, I want to pray a prayer with you. I prayed it many years ago. It's not the little words, probably wasn't the exact words. But the Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you want Jesus in your heart, being transferred to that new kingdom, pray with me right now. With heads bowed and eyes closed, pray this prayer with me. Lord, Lord God, thank you for wanting to be my father, my king. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me. And I trust you as my Savior and my Lord, purely by grace. I don't come to you a good person. I don't come to you because I'm raised from a good family. I don't come to you because I have a really good job and I can really help you. I can help you, God. No, I come to you, God, as a sinner with no hope of saving myself unless I receive the crucified Christ and risen Christ in my heart. And so I ask you to come into my heart. Help me to make, that, make me a Christ follower and be sure I'm doing it. Help me, Lord, to have those evidences in my life, those blessings in my life because of what you have done for me. And now, God, I want to pray for our entire church and those who are watching simply that you would bless us indeed, that you would enlarge our borders, our influence in life. I pray, God, that you would anoint us with your hand upon us. And I pray, God, that you would keep us from temptation and harm that would not cause us and other people pain. The Bible says Jabez prayed this prayer and God blessed it. I pray that you would do the same for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.